Living in perfect Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening again, everybody. Um, I thought it would be interesting to give a Zen talk tonight, uh, <laughs> because uh, probably you don't get that many Zen talks exactly. So uh, I thought it would be a good idea. might be fun. And I thought I would uh, use a classical uh, subject. One of the cases from the Mumonguan, uh, classical 13th century uh, Chinese collection of uh, 48 Zen koan. Usually, uh, you know, koan are little stories that have a reputation for being uh, enigmatic and hard to understand. And they're used usually as meditation objects in the context of retreats. So, in other words, you're not studying the story discursively and discussing it. You're breathing with it and taking it into your body, into your heart, and trying to penetrate its, its meaning at a level below the level of what you can think about or speak about. Because of this, uh, the traditional way of talking about koans is rather oblique, because uh, the great Zen masters don't want to give away too many good hints you know, about how to do this. They want you to find out for yourself. So the usual way of talking about the koans is to uh, tell a whole bunch of other koans you know, uh, related to the koan, none of which uh, are usually explained with a spirit of spurring you on to you know, more investigation. So that's the traditional way of speaking about koans. But um, lately in, in my practice, uh, I've been, you know, the people that I practice, after many years of living in the Zen Center, I retired from the Zen Center. And now I practice with people who uh, are not full-time Zen students living in monastic environments. And so I was thinking to myself, now how could I present these classical stories in relevant ways for those people? outside the context of retreat and monastic life without kind of watering down the stories or blunting their powerful points. So I've been experimenting with how to do that. And um, so one of the talk, what I would like to talk to you about tonight is one of the, one of the cases from Mumenkan in which I've tried to speak about it in, the, in that way. So it's, I don't think the talk is too long, and maybe afterward we'll have a chance for some discussion and dialogue. So the woman, Guan, was, these 48 stories were collected by a, a Zen teacher by the name of Wu Men. And uh, the, the form of the text is, first there is the story, which is usually but not always pretty brief. And then 
there's a short comment by Zen master Wu Men. And then uh, Wu Men writes a poem for each of the 48 cases. So the text consists of this little story, the prose commentary by Wu Men, and the poem. And then you comment on these things. So that's the, that's the uh, traditional uh, Zen way of giving a talk, as you, you read the case formally and the commentary and the, and the poem, and then you make your own uh, comments. So this is Woman Guan, case 43. Uh, the name of the case is Shushan's Short Bamboo Staff. Here's the case. Shushan held up his short bamboo staff before the assembly and said, Call this a staff, and you're entangled. Don't call it a staff, and you're ignorant. What do you call it? You see where the reputation uh, <laughs> comes from. And woman's, uh, so that's the case, that's the story. Woman's comment uh, on the story is, call it a staff and you're entangled. Don't call it a staff and you're ignorant. Using words won't cut it. Not using words won't cut it. Speak up, speak up. So that's Master Woman's illuminating comment <laughs> on the case. And woman's verse uh, is this, holding up a staff, giving life, taking life, when entangling and ignoring, mutually entangle and ignore, even Buddhas and ancestors beg for their lives. That's extreme Zen language, but <laughs> commonplace, it's the way that these old uh, Chinese Zen guys talked. So that's my subject for tonight, uh, to speak about this case and the comment and the verse. It's about language. Wh whoever thinks about how our minds are conditioned by the language that we use and how the world that we live in is made of that language that we use to speak to ourselves. That's life for us, life as we find it. And uh, if you go over the cases of the woman gone, you find that they keep circling back over and over again uh, to the same points because we keep having the same human problems over and over again. We get mad at ourselves for being so stupid and then we resolve to improve. Or, if we can't improve, then maybe we can get enlightened and therefore be immune to these problems. <laughs> we think, let's go to Spirit Rock and get out of all this. But, if we're really honest, we have to admit that none of this actually works. That life persists in being difficult. And the more honest we are, I think, with our lives, the more this seems to be the case. If we look at our own hearts and minds uh, again and again, we find ourselves caught 
by our own words, thoughts, and emotions. So then maybe we say, all right then, I'm going to be detached. No more getting caught like that again. No more getting involved. No more getting drawn in again. But we just can't help it. Involvement is inevitable one way or the other, no matter what we think. It's impossible to be detached because life draws you forward again and again and every time you get entangled. So Shushan's staff is not just a staff. And the problem that he's posing is not just a philosophical problem. Shushan's short staff is whatever appears in the middle of our lives. Our ambition, our emotion, our comfort, our love, <coughs> our well-being, our identity. As soon as we identify it, name it, believe, however subtly and unconsciously, in the absolute validity of our definition, we're caught. So easy for us to be afraid, so easy for us to be feeling threatened when we're caught. And when we get caught, we fight. We're thrashing around in our misery, losing the ease and acceptance we crave, and know that we can feel in our lives, but we're just not feeling it when we're caught. On the other hand, if we don't name something in the middle of our lives, if we don't believe it, if we don't identify it as anything, that's not right either. This is the problem Shushan is posing, because it's impossible not to. Oh, I don't mind, you know, it's all right if this, everything is crashing down around my ears, because after all, I'm a Buddhist and I have no self anyway. <laughs> Why should I worry? People, some people you know, talk like that, but it's completely false. It's merely substituting one language game for another. No, as long as we're walking up and down on this earth, in this body, and as long as we're opening up our mouth and speaking, we will always be caught on the horns of the human dilemma. It's really hopeless. How are we going to take care and to care about our lives completely without being twisted out of shape by our caring? Or, on the other hand, thinking that we can live without caring. This is the problem. This is a big problem. And this is the problem that Shushan is talking about when he talks about his staff. And no words can cut through this problem. In other words, no ideologies, no beliefs, no ideas that we can hold in our minds are going to help us with this problem. And avoiding words and ideas and thoughts and ideologies won't work either, because we can't ever, as long as we have consciousness, whose very mode is discrimination and difference, 
be beyond belief or ideology. So what are we going to do? This is what Shushan holds up in front of the assembly when he holds up his staff. It's a really serious question, which we go through our lives not realizing that that's the question. We think we can fix it this way, we can fix it that way, we can do this, we can do that. And, and actually, if we're honest, like I said, none of it really and truly works. It is a stark and tenacious problem. I'm sorry to be telling you this, but <laughs> there you go. I mean, it's really the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry. I guess I should be saying, oh, no, this will work, this will be fine. But no, no, it's a big problem, being a human being. It's a problem uh, every day. It's a problem every minute. The truth is, life is impossible. <laughs> Several uh, older members of the audience are nodding their heads wisely and knowing how true this is. Those of you who are younger are still hoping. <laughs> but no. <laughs> Give up hope. Life really is impossible. There is no way to get it right. There is no way you're going to like perfect your life. There's no way you're going to be on the mark with your life. In fact, being off the mark seems to be the essential nature of being alive. You know, being off balance, constantly in the midst of falling, and just catching yourself at the last minute and then falling again. That seems to be <laughs> what life is. So the idea that we're going to solve this problem, that we're going to come up with the answer that is going to make Shushan smile approvingly, which he never would do because being a good old-fashioned Zen master, whatever we say or do, he'll still give us 40 blows with his stick. <laughs> so we should give up that idea. Instead, so in other words, it's not a matter of figuring this thing out. It's instead a matter of standing up and acting as we have to act because we're alive in the middle of an impossible situation. Knowing exactly how impossible it is and coming forth with full commitment and joy. That's the way we have to live. If we don't know the situation we're actually in, we'll be trying all sorts of things that will never work. When we know how dire a situation we're actually in, then we can come forward with some decisiveness and joy, knowing what's going on. So, uh, one example, uh, I'll try to make some illustrations of this. Um, this war that we have going on uh, in Iraq, which still continues, uh, you're all aware of it and thinking about it, I'm sure. Before the war happened, there was a lot of discussion about the war. Many people spoke out and wrote, including myself. Some time ago, I read an, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times. The title of the op-ed piece was, I Said That? That was the title of the piece, I Said That? 
And in this uh, op-ed piece, the author uh, admitted, you know, embarrassedly, uh, that what he had previously said about the war had turned out to have been wrong. His predictions and so on had been wrong. So now he was writing an article, you know, apologizing and admitting his error. And then he went on to say something else, to make another informed prediction about what would happen next <laughs> and how our government should proceed based on his certainty that this is what was going to happen next. Before the war started, I also made predictions. Uh, but the only difference between me and the New York Times author is that I was not at all surprised to find that my predictions proved false. And I didn't really feel embarrassed by what I had said. Because even as I was making predictions, in, in as strong a way as I could, to make my case about what I felt about the war, I understood that I didn't know what would actually happen. I knew that my predictions could be right, but also could be wrong. And I spoke out, not because I knew for sure what was right, but because I'm a person, a human being living on the planet, and I felt compelled to speak up, speak up, like Master Shushan says. And so I said, with full commitment and as skillfully as I could, what seemed most true to me at the time. But I understood that I didn't really know. And the more I read and studied about the situation, the more complex I saw that it was, and the more that I understood that I didn't really know. <coughs> Nevertheless, I was clear about my point of view. Here's another example, a more personal one. Um, friends of mine know that every now and then, due to uh, stupidity of lack of mindfulness, I lift something in a funny way and I get a huge back troubles. Really a lot of pain that goes on and on and on and on. And I'm suffering a lot with back pains. And uh, in my line of work, uh, when I suffer with back pains, I get a huge amount of advice about what to do about my back pain. I get every remedy known to humankind, practically. So if I go uh, have my back pain and I go to an orthopedist, I will get orthopedic advice. If I go to the acupuncturist, I will get acupuncturist advice. Probably if I went to the psychotherapist, I could also get advice from her or him. I get all kinds of advice. Chiropractic advice, yoga advice, you know, all kinds of advice. And every one of them is true. All the advice I get is right and true, even though every one is completely different. So they're all true, partially true. And it gets a little confusing, you know. And here I am, suffering with back pain, and I have to figure out what to do. So I do something. 
Do I know it's the right thing to do? Not really. But I do something, and I have to commit myself to what I'm doing, when I'm doing it. But I understand. I don't really know. And I also know, probably no one really knows. Everybody knows something, but probably no one really knows exactly what it is. And I have to fumble around until it gets better. Knowing that, I really don't get disappointed or upset about how things turn out. Because I know that I don't know how it'll turn out. And if I do get upset, I realize, what a dummy. Now I have two problems. The back problem, and now I'm upset. That's not helping my back problem. So this is, you know, all of us. This is how we all live. We don't really know what's going on with our personal lives, with the world we live in. We actually don't really know. Does that sound terrible to you, that we don't really know? Wouldn't you like to know exactly what's going on, what really should be done about Iraq, what really should be done about your back pain, so that you could have a certainty that you could operate on, so that you could have a solution that you could really believe in because you absolutely knew that it was correct? Do you find it uh, uncomfortable not knowing? Well, I'm sorry if you do. <laughs> Actually, I find it rather comforting not knowing what's going on and being forced to trust my responses completely, to do my best on every occasion, of course, willing to adjust if the next moment the situation is different. This might seem to you uh, to be a shaky way to proceed in life, but to me, it's the best way to proceed. If you keep your eyes and ears open, and the only way to really have your eyes and ears open is to be ready to hear a truth at any moment that you never heard before, which might just be the truth that you need for right now. If you can keep your eyes and ears open in that way, then you can always trust life to give you what you need when you need it. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to know everything. You'll get what you need. You can trust that. Even if what you happen to need right now is a good kick in the pants. Or a pain in the neck. Or back. There's a great uh, story uh, in the Jewish tradition. Maybe some of you know this story. Before there were human beings, uh, God was deciding whether or not he should or she should create human beings. So God took a vote, being a good democratic <laughs> God. So the vote, in this vote, the score was tied Two to two. Love felt that it would be a really worthwhile thing to create human beings because 
they would love one another with a beautiful love. So love voted, yes, let's create human beings. And righteousness agreed with love's point of view, because righteousness felt that human beings, with their marvelous capacity for discrimination, would be able to perform many righteous acts that would inspire the world. So love and righteousness voted yes. On the other side of the question were peace and truth. <laughs> peace felt sure that the creation of human beings would be a disaster all the way around. Peace thought that, you know, everything was very peaceful before the creation of human beings, but as <laughs> soon as human beings would be created, the peace of the world would be shattered by the cacophony of the human voices contending with one another on and on until eventually war would break out. So peace voted no, absolutely not. Truth also voted no. The troublesome, self-centered, and blind as they were, how would human beings ever see the truth? This was truth's point of view. So God noted that it was a tie, two to two. So being the wise and powerful God that God is, God picked up truth and hurled it out of the heavens. truth uh, shot through space and landed on earth, shattering into a million pieces. Now the score was two to one and God went ahead and created human beings. <laughs> and this is why the story goes, we human beings can never actually know the truth but only find pieces of it scattered wherever we look. When the sum total of all the truth there is is found by all the people of the world and put together cooperatively, truth will be whole again, and according to this Jewish story, that's the moment when the Messiah will appear. So, we should not at all be dismayed when we recognize that we don't know the whole truth, or that the truth we know right now might have to be discarded in the next moment, or the truth we have now is contradicted by some other truth. We should not be surprised by this. Wherever we are, our practice is to pick up some piece of truth with courage, acting on it as we must, and understanding that when it comes to truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, we will always fall a little short, at least until the Messiah arrives, or the Buddhist Messiah, who is Maitreya, arrives. When we know this, we won't have to be surprised or humiliated when we make mistakes, or when things turn out to be not as they seemed. It doesn't matter if we make mistakes. I mean, we should try our best not to make mistakes, but it doesn't matter if we do. And it doesn't matter if things turn out not to be what they seem, even though we might be dismayed when that happens.
It only means that, just as we always knew, things are changing all the time. And here we are, in a brand new situation. How often does it happen to us like that? In a flash, in a moment, suddenly, everything is completely different. A bomb falls on our house. If this seems like a far-fetched thing to us here, it's not at all far-fetched in many parts of the world. Or we get into a car accident. Or we receive a medical diagnosis. Or our lover walks out on us. But never mind about these drastic things. The truth is changing anyway, every moment. The sun comes up. A shadow falls across a table. We read some words in a book. A thought crosses our minds. Moment after moment, the world is turning. And all that we knew and depended on has changed completely. And in the next moment, this is going to happen all over again. As soon as we call it a staff, we're stuck in the previous moment and we're not ready. Do you understand? And if we say, all right, then I won't call it a staff, I won't call it anything, then we withdraw from this moment of our lives. We don't embrace it. There's one uh, Zen teacher that I study with uh, named Dainin Katagiri. And uh, he, he wrote two books, but they were published after his death. And the titles of the two books were, the first one was called Returning to Silence. And the second one was called You Have to Say Something. <laughs> so none of us can avoid these two mistakes. And we all have in our lives times of engagement and times of withdrawal, even though engagement is just as impossible as withdrawal is. But when we understand this, we can act with some courage, allowing our entanglement and our ignorance to mutually penetrate each other. And then, as Master Muman says, even the Buddhas will have to sit up and take notice of us if we can act with that kind of integrity. Here's another example of the same problem. Uh, you know, after many, many years uh, living and practicing in the Zen Center, maybe about 25 or 30 years, I retired from the Zen Center and now I'm uh, practicing uh, Zen a little bit unconventionally. Um, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to be different or unconventional. But I just have to do what I can do in the circumstances in which I find myself. And some of my uh, colleagues look at some of the things I'm doing and they say, I can't believe he's doing that. Why is he doing that? 
And they tell me. They're not shy. <laughs> they tell me. <laughs> and they might think, you know, what is he doing? What is he doing? But I tell them, look, I'm just trying to figure out how to continue my practice in the best way that I can, adjusting to the circumstances uh, that I find myself in. And I know that I don't really know what I'm doing. And probably that some of the ways I'm finding to teach and practice might not work out. But that's all right, after all. I try my best to be careful, which doesn't come easy for me, but I try. And I consistently hope for the best, and I'm always ready for the worst. Isn't anyone's life, after all, just one big, grand experiment, always brilliant, even if a failure? Because no one ever lived this particular life before in these specific and particular karmic circumstances. It's never happened before. So it's an experiment. There's no path. There's no way. How could there be any way to go about living your unique life? If you know this, what is there to be discouraged about? What is there to worry about? Something of this is expressed in uh, another poem written by another Zen master on this case. This poem says, Had I been there when he said, What do you call it? I would have whistled a few times and watched old Shushan crumble and melt. Because he saw through that problem. He accepted the problem and whistled his way through it. You see? Showing Shushan that I'm not afraid of this human dilemma. I go forward anyway. I understand. Here's another uh, commentary poem on the case. Reviling others is reviling yourself. Anger at others is anger at yourself. Be wary of this. Be careful. What comes from you returns to you. Can such a simple, one-dimensional, moral or psychological axiom really be true? <laughs> and even if it were true, what does it have to do with Shushan's staff? Quite a lot, it seems to me. When we recognize that we never know truth and that all our thoughts and ideas are just that, thoughts and ideas passing through our minds. And that's what the world is too. Because the world can only appear to us as thoughts and ideas and experiences passing through our minds. When we live this way and understand this way, then we're free to really take care of ourselves, free to recognize our own responsibility 
for our lives and for the world. And we're free to be radically kind. We're free to actually, really love. No one else is ever to blame for our problems. Even if we have been wronged in a thousand ways, as so many of us in this world have been, by people who probably really don't know what they're doing, and maybe themselves were, were wronged and confused in their lives, even if we have been victims like this, this is an unimportant thing when it comes to really finding some happiness, really penetrating the reality of our lives. I have a close friend and colleague who has a really terrible and serious uh, degenerative illness that attacks not only his body but also his mind. And he's literally falling apart uh, day by day. Not that this is not also happening to you and I. <laughs> we are also uh, literally falling apart little by little, day by day, except in our case it's less noticeable than it is in, in his. For him it's quite noticeable. You would think uh, that of all the people in this world, he would be the one who has the right to be miserable and bitter. But he's not. Instead of bitterness and blame, he experiences a great deal of happiness and freedom. The other day he said to me, everything is just happening. Parts and pieces of a world fluttering around. Well, the more you get into it, uh, the stranger spiritual practice is. The more uncanny it becomes. But I think that's just because life's that way when you really take a look. So this is my talk on the 43rd case of Mumon Khan. And we have a few minutes in case uh, there's any discussion, questions, conversation, statements, complaints, spontaneous poems, Zen shouts, whatever you have. Anybody? Uh-huh, yes. Mm-hmm. I had a lecture, uh, an interview tonight of a man who's going to be put to death in Camp Cotton on October 10th. Yeah. Did you hear that? I didn't hear the interview, but I know of the story, yeah. Well, you know, as a spiritual person and a person who's practicing a spiritual art form, I'm going to be targeted by this.
continue to go on with my daily life and those things happen and they they're almost invisible when I talk to you all, did you all hear what she said? She was referring to uh, the possible execution of a man who, Kevin yeah, Kevin Cooper, who very well may be innocent um, at San Quentin on, on February 10th. And the more general question of how, how do you go on uh, in the face of uh, that particular instance of suffering and other instances of suffering. And about speaking up about it. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a you know a lot of suffering in this world, uh, a huge amount of suffering in this world, and we, we know every day that we when we wake up in the morning we understand this is a day of suffering for many 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 people, animals and plants. This day, for sure, is a day of huge suffering. And that's part of what has always gone on and what will go on. That's part of living. As human beings, uh, we have the obligation to understand our lives. And when we understand our lives, we know that we're not separate from any of this suffering. And so we know that it's part of our obligation and duty as human beings to do whatever we can to speak out, point to this suffering, and if there's any way to alleviate it, do so. And sustain a life of doing that. In order to sustain a life of doing that, we have to have some happiness and some ease. You can't be in a state of grief and misery all the time. You won't help anyone. You won't help yourself. You won't help the people around you. You have to find some happiness and some strength to just continue every day to understand the nature of life and the nature of suffering and to do your best to work with it. And I myself have found that to continue my practice and continue my practice with others in community is a huge support and help for that. You know, it really helps to sustain uh, that ongoing work. We don't think that that work will be finished in one year or five years or ten years or even at the end of our life, whatever, however old we are, we think that that work will uh, continue as long as there are human beings on the planet. So we're just participating in that and going on with it, with life. If we find ourselves so overwhelmed with grief that we can't go forward, we need to take care of ourselves, take a break, take a rest, get some help. But really, if we're overcome with grief and we're not able to go on with courage and a good spirit, then we really don't understand the nature of suffering yet. When we really understand the nature of suffering, then we can go on uh, with a good spirit and with courage and cheerfulness without shortchanging how much suffering there is one bit. So that's a tall order. I admit, definitely. But that's our, the effort that we make in practice, and we go as far as we can with that. Hmm. Yes? So, can we just choose to be happy in this situation like that, and then 
by suffering around your other choices, being overwhelmed or being joyful about it, can you just bring it up if you want to be? Well, you know, happiness isn't singing and dancing all the time, right? Sometimes uh, when there's sorrow and sadness, there's also happiness. There's also some feeling of embracing life, not despairing. So I think, no, when we are confronted face-to-face -face with suffering, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there's regret. But that doesn't mean that there's despair and uh, confusion. So I think we can have a kind of rooted happiness through different emotional states. And I myself, I don't know about you, but I myself would not want to be cheerful when I was confronting suffering. I would want to feel a sorrow and sadness and, and regret and so on. I also would not want to feel despair, you know, uh, that I couldn't go through my life, that I couldn't, in the next moment, go on and, do, and you know, experience a moment of joy. Suppose, I, suppose after I see uh, a terrible suffering, I turn around and see, uh, as one happens in life quite frequently, uh, a friend with a new baby. Should I then uh, say, oh, no, 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 this is terrible, you know, the world is really bad, you know, somebody just was destroyed and, and you have a baby? You know, what are you doing, you know? <laughs> you think that's nice, having a baby? <laughs> no, I would want to be able to turn to the person with the baby and have a delight, you know, in that. And if the next moment I saw suffering in, I would want to feel, you know, so, uh, in other words, w there can be happiness throughout all these states of mind, and we can, because just as much suffering as there is, there's also that much joy. Because every day is a day of enormous suffering, and every day is a day of birth, and new possibilities, every single day. So we have to see, that's what I meant when I said, if you, if you, if you become uh, despairing over suffering, you don't really understand the nature of suffering. Because the nature of suffering is that, joy and suffering are inextricably intermingled. There's no suffering unless there's joy. There's no joy without suffering. That's why we're such a mess, because we think we can only have joy and not have any suffering, you know? <laughs> That's why we're so, you know, unhappy. So, no, we, we have to accept and grieve over the suffering and then let go and experience joy when it's there. And that's what it takes for us to sustain a human life, you know, with our feet on the ground. And, and, and you know, you, as you said, I'm not saying that this is something we can just decide to do. You know, I, oh, I heard this talk, so from now on, that's how it's going to be for me. No, I don't think that's realistic. But I do think that practice over t faithful practice over time does, little by little, bring us to this point. I do think that that's true. So there is something that we can do about it, but 
but not like a solution to a problem, like I'm going to make this happen by doing the following things. What's the matter? I don't feel that way. You know, what happened? What went wrong? You know, it's not like that. It's more like you devote yourself to your spiritual practice with some seriousness and some continuity and some support and some, you know, spiritual practice. You need a community. You need some good teaching. You need some effort on your own part. You need to be very honest with yourself and all these things. This spiritual practice is not something that you do on Sunday or Monday night or something like that, you know. Spiritual practice is something that you do all the time. And when you do that, then I think little by little you have a, a viewpoint that can sustain and, and understand these things and live them, little by little. So no, it's not just a matter of deciding that this is a good idea, so from now on I'm going to be that way. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice, though? <laughs> yes? Huh. Well, it was purely uh, an accident and a mistake. <laughs> it was not something that I ever set out to do. And uh, when I first uh, realized that I was going to uh, become ordained as a Zen priest, I was dismayed at the thought. But I got over it. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. I don't think I've ever regretted it. Now that you've mentioned that, I never thought about it. But I don't think, I, uh, I can't recall, you know, regretting it. Um, and, you, and you may say, you know, well, why, if, you, if it was an accident, a mistake, and you were dismayed by it, why did you do it? Somebody might ask that question. <laughs> And uh, the answer to that question is because uh, I had decided uh, what I was saying, you know, uh, in my talk about life being impossible was very personal because this was something that I recognized from an early age, uh, that life actually is deeply impossible. And what are all these people running around thinking, you know? To me, that was how I looked at the world. So that's why I had a very strong motivation to continue my practice. And the reason I went ahead and was ordained as a Zen priest is because I had decided that I was going to continue my practice until I was, my heart was at rest, and whatever it took. And if it took doing this dismaying thing, then I was going to do it if that's what was required, you know, along. And for me, that's the way it shaped up. So even though it was not my favorite idea, I did it because it was sort of basically a requirement for me to continue practicing Zen full time. And that's what I was clear that I wanted to do until, until I felt settled, you know. And eventually I felt more or less settled. But then, by then, I wasn't, I was then practicing with others and for others more. That became my practice, so then. But one of these days, you know, I might disappear to Tahiti or something. You know what I mean? Like, what happened to him? We don't know. He's gone. We have no idea where he is. He left his empty robe behind and he's disappeared. So you never know. <laughs> Any, any, any other question? Yes. 
you know, just kind of when you talk about joy and suffering, I kind of find if you really recognize, like, oh, this is suffering. Yeah. Like, really just sitting in my body. Yeah. And seeing how the body feels, there's that sense of the other end of like, ah, the joy, because I actually can become present and feel myself. Yeah. And really be aware, and to me, that's where then really the balance and the equanimity starts starts to come in, and you see that. You know, life is like that. And yeah, and, yeah. And, and so it's like, part of when you say it's impossible, to me it's like, well, that's the joy of the unknowing universe that yes. makes us what we are, human, because it's like impossible doesn't even seem like a word to even use because it's just what we do. Yeah. This craziness. Yeah, yeah. He said a lot of things, probably a lot of you didn't, didn't hear. But uh, what he said, in effect, was uh, that that uh, in the midst of suffering, if you know it as suffering and you, and you bring awareness to that, then there's some happiness there, even in the midst of suffering. That's pretty much what you were saying, yeah. And, 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 uh, and that uh, the very impossibility of life only seems like a tragedy when you think it shouldn't be impossible, but when you <laughs> say, oh yeah, that's how it is, then there's some happiness and lightness to it. Exactly, and yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you. I'm glad that you uh, have that perspective. It's uh, very relieving, isn't it? It's made a difference. Yeah, it makes yeah, a big I difference. Mean, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's not so up and down anymore. Yeah, you're at the, otherwise, you're at the, completely at the mercy of circumstances beyond your control all the time. Right? I mean, who can control what happens? Nobody can control what happens. So. If you're so fo fixed on what happens and your happiness depends on everything should happen just right, forget about it. You're in a miserable situation. <laughs> you have to have some equanimity and some ability to uh, appreciate what happens regardless of whether it's what you planned on or what you like. Absolutely. That's the whole, that's liberation, right? That's what liberation is, is freedom from being buffeted about by conditions all the time. Yeah. One last thing, yes. Uh, you stated that uh, uh, we should be open to new things, new ideas that come to us. And I think you stated that uh, we should trust that uh, as we're open to these new, new, uh, these new things, that we'll get what we want, mm -hmm. what we need. Mm -hmm. um, are you pretty sure of that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. No, uh, experience. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he said, uh, he, he was uh, quoting from my talk when I said that, that, um, that we have to be open to new ideas and new experiences and that we can trust what happens and we'll always get just what we need. And he said, are you sure of that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I am sure. Now, it, 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 we, we may be dismayed by what happens to us. It's not that we're all, always going to love it. But I think that, um, you know, what are the alternatives to this, right? What's the alternative but to embrace and make use of what's happening? The alternative is to say, this is not happening. I don't accept this. This is not happening. But it is happening. It is happening. So I don't see any other way, actually, but to make use of it for your life and to make your life beautiful around what's actually happening. Because as we all know, I'm sure everybody in the room here knows somebody 
who has had things happen in their life that they said, this is not happening, I will not go along with this, and became then frozen and embittered in their lives from that day on. Maybe this is true of some of us here, I don't know. So that can happen. So I think there really is, it's the way I look at things, really no alternative to that. And that doesn't mean we go around saying, isn't it wonderful? Look, a war started. Fantastic. That's just what we needed. <laughs> oh, look, bombs are falling on the house. This is terrific. This is exactly what I needed to wake me out of my stupor. <laughs> oh, I'm being robbed on the street at gunpoint. Fantastic. I really like you, Mr. Gun-toting fellow shooting me with a gun, because this is exactly what I needed. I don't mean that that's a kind of like, you know, naive, ridiculous point of view. No, when the guy shows up with the gun, you don't like it, and I don't like it. But I have to cooperate with that reality and find a way to make it into my path, whatever it is, through whatever emotions I may have in relation to it. So I didn't mean to say something that sounded as simple-minded as it seems. It's not so simple-minded. Uh, but I do think it's true, and I think it's true 100% of the time. I have talked to so many people, I'm so many people who, in the face of disaster, have said to me, eventually, you know, that disaster, rotten as it was, and, and as much as I grieved over it, turned out to be really something that made my life bigger and wider and more beautiful. Many, many people that I've spoken to who have said that. Not everybody says that, of course. But I think if you, uh, if your spiritual practice, you bring it to bear in those times in your life, you will say that eventually. It happens eventually. Well, the time is, is up. <laughs>